Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, we're bringing you the second hour of a discussion about race and racism, and especially about grace in reaching for solutions. Our guests are both African-Americans. Rodney Long Jr. joins us from his hometown in Akron, Ohio, where he has worked as an addictions counselor, social worker, and mental health worker. And he was brought to my attention by an article he wrote for Friends Journal called, Before My Life Matters to You, Let It Matter to Me. We also have Salika Duxworth-Lawton here, raised in New Orleans, but who now graces my city, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, with her wide-ranging activism and as professor of history at the University of Wisconsin in Eau Claire. Hopefully, you heard part one of the conversation, but if not, you can listen at northernspiritradio.org to the show entitled Race in Place, Akron and New Orleans and Eau Claire. Even if you haven't, you'll likely be greatly enriched by the further deepening of our discussion by a vital stage of the process too often ignored by our culture, getting to know each other deeply, the person behind the opinions and arguments. Before we re-enter the conversation with Rodney and Salika, I want to play a song for you. Chester McCoy was my guest for my Song of the Soul program back in 2006, someone I got to know through the Quakers in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, though he now lives over in Maryland. As an African-American who grew up in East St. Louis, Chester experienced a lot of the issues of race in place, some of which he sings of in his song, Where I Grew Up. Here's a home recording I did with Chester McCoy, back in 2006. Where I grew up We played ball every day Dreaming that we could be The next Willie Mays Where I grew up Fire kept us cool In the heat of a summer day Weren't allowed in the public pool where I grew up Everything was black and white We colored outside the lines Fighting for civil rights Where I grew up Where I grew up Separate part of town If you knew what was good for you you got home before the sun went down Where I grew up Everybody knew your name People looked out for you No matter your claim to fame Where I grew up And I could still hear my mama's voice Reminding me that I had a choice Music on the radio Gave us strength for another day Gave us faith there was always hope Where I grew up We colored outside the lines 
that was a different place And those were different times Where I grew up Again, that was Chester McCoy, Where I Grew Up. And now, on to part two of our visit with Rodney Long Jr. and Salika Lawton, starting with a minute or two from the end of last week's show. Let me make a statement that I would love to have your input on. I I don't want to say I'm happy. No, that's not exactly it. I count myself fortunate that I was not born black in this culture that with my same intelligence, drive, creativity, I think that the racism that's inherent in the air in the United States, almost every place, and may I don't know if that's true in Akron, Ohio, and New Orleans, and everywhere equally, but being black for me, with everything else the same within me, I think would have been it, it would have presented challenges. There would have been not equal justice given me, not equal privilege given to me, not equal listening given to me, that kind of thing. I think that that's true. That's my understanding, that systemic racism does exist in this culture. So everything else the same, my skin's dark versus it's light as it is, or hyper white as my beard makes me look now. That I think would have worked against me. Now, I might have taken that difficulty and I might have worked hard about it and become out even better than I am now. But I actually come from a family, a working class family. I'm one of 12 kids. My brothers and sisters refer to me as the white sheep of the family. The reason I'm the white sheep of the family is because out of the 12, I'm the only one to go to a four-year college. I'm the only one who hasn't struggled with drinking, drugs, smoking, addictions. I haven't done any of that stuff. That's why I'm the white sheep. It's not because I make more money than the others. I have brothers and sisters who have more money than I do considerably. But I know what it's like to come up working class, and I don't talk working class. If you heard most of my brothers and sisters talking, you would hear the social class difference between us. I ain't got nothing to do today. But that doesn't come out of my mouth. So anyway, all of that to get to the point where I think racism exists. And here's the other thing that maybe Rodney was trying to make as part of his article in Friends Journal called Before My Life Matters to You, Let It Matter to Me. I believe that if I believe I'm a victim, it will disempower me, that my outcome will be better if I believe that I'm not a victim. And you can contrast that with the fact that I believe that racism does affect the outcome. But if I believe that racism is controlling my life, I will limit my own ability to overcome the drag on my outcomes that is caused by society. I don't know if I said that well at all, but it is part of my perspective. And I would love the both of you to help me get closer to enlightenment. I'm going to throw something at you. In my experience, people who have believed that they are a victim use that as an excuse to abuse others around them. You know, I'm a rural black person. I have not really encountered very many people who are of my race who would play the victim card. The few who have, have done it as a measure of getting power. I've seen far more whites do it, and they use it as a justification of power or discrimination. 
But to me, seeing yourself as a victim gives you permission to abuse people. So I haven't seen people who see themselves as victims feel disempowered. What I've seen them be is bullies, mean to other people. And there's a strong level of addiction with the people who I've had to deal with addiction in youth who use playing the victim as an excuse not to deal with that addiction. I don't know if Rodney has seen that on his side, but that's what I've seen working with youth. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I've seen it. I would probably say it the opposite way. Um, And again, that's not to discredit. I believe it happens that way as well. I certainly would never say it doesn't. I think, Mark, to your point, I, I do see it happen that way. In psychology, we call that labeling theory. You know, it tends to be a self-fulfilling prophecy that if I tell you, you are, you tend to live up to your expectations. If I tell you, you aren't crap, you start to believe you aren't crap. And so I really see it happen that way. And and to me, that's, I guess that's part of why I wrote the article was that it made me really uncomfortable that what I was experiencing was this rhetoric that seemed to be that every Black person was experiencing this. And, And to me, that's, and again, I'm not saying people were saying that, but that's what I was hearing. The, the rhetoric as if we're all under attack, we're all oppressed, we're all victims in this situation. And I just felt like I'm not, a lot of the people I know are not. And I think it's a dangerous message to send because the people that I know, what they're hearing is, hey, I'm never going to get ahead because I, I just can't anyways. I, I still know people that say that today. And sometimes I say to them, do you recognize where you're at today? Like, do you recognize the standing you have? Like, I'd say you're anything but victimized at this point. You know, you're about as upper class as they come. And I've been lucky enough to know many people who've come out of my situation to be really, really successful monetarily, but also really successful not monetarily. I don't believe, so like, I, I don't believe I hate kind of the hustle culture, the entrepreneur mindset. I, I, I'm not a fan of that. What I am a fan of is, hey, there's a shortage of blue collar jobs. And if you just stay in school and go to trade school, we can help you get out of the situation of extreme poverty and into maybe a working class family, which may not mean $100,000 a year, but maybe it means $60,000 a year. And that's a heck of a lot better than whatever they pay at McDonald's, those kind of things. So I was really concerned with the message of, hey, if you're, if you're Black, you're under attack, because I really felt like I wasn't. I was actually feeling like, and the people around me too, what we were really getting was a lot of advantages. And we weren't taking care of those. We weren't fostering those advantages. And certainly, I think it has happened that way where someone has their thumb on the victim and they're using that power. I had just seen it happen the other way too. Certainly in my own family, with the people in my community, to where if you send the message, I am a victim, they tend to believe that, which in turn, and I know I may catch crap for this, but gives them an excuse to then play up to that. And, And I see it in psychology a lot that people tend, in sports too, as a sports guy growing up, people tend to live up to the expectation that you set for them. You know, I think similar to this, one of the kind of things that if you have kids, you know, I don't think anybody ever tells their kids, well, you're not going to make it, buddy. The bar is here for you. So you really need a lot more help than the kid next to you. I want to tell my daughter, you can do whatever the heck you want to do. You may have to put a lot more work than the other kids because you may not have all the intrinsic skills that they have. And it may take a lot of work, but you can still get there. And I think had I sent a different message, that's what kind of scared me, which prompted me to write the article. Well, and I understand that. I mean, the the black middle class in most places doesn't say that we're victims. We have been under attack. I mean, Black Wall Street's real. But we say we resist. And I grew up with the people. I was the integration generation. We were the ones who were sent out for the first time. Yeah, that was fun. 
And we were all told, you're going to have to work twice as hard to do this, but you represent the race. So you have an obligation to present yourself in a certain way. So it's not a victim mentality, but it is a resistance mentality. And I think that's what we've seen this summer with BLM. You know, and I was the one who was providing logistical support up here. And it was that middle-class Black people were tired of being falsely accused and seen as criminals just for their skin, just for breathing. And when you look at Minneapolis, that's a really, that police force has big corruption and training issues. You look at Milwaukee, you look at Cleveland, you look at NOPD. You know, and that's a matter of training, that's a matter of problems, but if you are middle class and you're doing what you're supposed to do, there is nothing that is just more aggravating than have somebody call the police on you because you're barbecuing or to be falsely accused. And I think, Mark, the, the difference in growing up black and working class and white and working class is the false accusation. It's also the cash bail system, because if you're falsely accused of a crime, lawyers are expensive. It's about $5,000 just to get a retainer. If you don't have that kind of money, then you have to plead to something you didn't do. And all of a sudden, you can't get jobs. So we have right now DAs with great discretion to screw people over. You want to have a good DA in place who's not going to overcharge. You know, I'm thinking about the guy down here by me who was white, who was arrested because somebody called him for having a weapon and he had a Nerf gun. And they arrested him for disturbing the peace. That one was in the news. And he had to get a lawyer. That's one of my neighbors. You know, if you don't have a lawyer, you have to plead to that. And there goes your unemployment. So, you know, we got to hit the problem of poverty in two different ways. We need to do what Rodney is talking about, which is helping people help themselves, helping people see that they have agency, helping to create environments that encourage people to get out of poverty. But we also have to attack the kind of governmental corruption you see in big urban areas like Milwaukee, like Minneapolis, that if you're hustling, you're doing what you're supposed to do, you are a young person who is minding your own business and some Karen decides to come along and create havoc and falsely accuse you, that your whole wealth and life won't get upended. That fear of false accusation is real. You know, that's why someone like me, I'm upper middle class. I have a PhD. I keep all my email because I have a colleague who falsely accused me the other day, popped off the email and said, nope, didn't do it. I don't know what you're talking about. And my chair had to go yell at that person. Bullies look for what they think your weakness is. If you are brown in America and you're dealing with a corrupted bully, that's what they're going to try to bully you for. But as a black person who has some experience, you develop, I would say, ways of dealing with it, defense mechanisms, you prepare. But that takes an energy that sometimes if you're white and working class, you don't have to expend. I haven't had to. And even when I was living in Africa, again, I was a privileged racial minority there, right? I was white and therefore presumed to have money. And there were a couple times where because I was white and a minority, my well-being was in question. 
that there was a mob there protesting against colonists, and I'm the only one who could look like a colonist. And, you know, I've also been in black areas in Milwaukee where I didn't feel safe because I knew I stuck out. (laughs) So I know being a minority anywhere is a tenuous situation. It's just that in the United States, there's a question of how systemic the racism and the power structures are. I'm hearing from Rodney Long Jr. over in Akron, Ohio, that he doesn't feel like that's the environment that he lives in. I think statistics nationwide make me worried for my brothers and sisters who are black. I wanted to go into a couple other topics, if it's okay with the two of you. And again, we're both with Rodney Long, joining us from Akron, Ohio. He wrote an article recently in Friends Journal called Before My Life Matters to You, Let It Matter to Me. And we're with the wonderful Salika Lawton. She's here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I live. She teaches at the University in History, and she's active with ACLU, Converge Radio. She's active with an organization called Uniting Bridges. And if you go on Facebook and look for Uniting Bridges, I have that link on NordenSpiritRadio.org you'll find some excellent work and way forward opening because of the kind of insightful work that Salika helps lead the community in. Again, I'm very thankful both to you, Rodney, and to you, Salika, that you've joined me here today for Spirit in Action. Here's my next question, though. One of the things I really appreciated about your article, Rodney, was your description of your path religiously. Now, again, you grew up with parents who were drug addicted, both of them, and all the difficulties that that entails for you. You got involved in religion in a couple different ways. The last couple of years, you've been associated with friends, with Quakers, friends being the official name. And I think that that fits into and it empowers and it mobilizes you to do some things in the world. And Salika, I think you're a lifelong Catholic, and I think that you use that as a great empowerment for your life as well. So, Rodney, could you first talk about how these issues are related to your religious spiritual journey? Yeah, I think they're really central to my spiritual journey. I felt really at home when I found the friend. It was like, where have you been all my life? You know, I I grew up in a Baptist church. We were Christmas and Easter people. You know, my, my grandparents took us on Christmas and Easter. As I got into high school and college, I started attending mega churches, which were actually prosperity theology churches. Uh, I didn't know that at the time. Those are the churches that say, hey, do right, and God's going to bless you with money and health. And, and I certainly didn't care about those things. So when I had found the Quakers, I really felt like I had found a place that was meaningful to me because they were living out all the things that mattered to me my entire life. I just didn't know they were Quaker qualities. And if you're, some of your listeners are probably aware of the spices, the Quaker spices, it's an acronym, you know, simplicity, peacefulness, integrity, community, equality, and stewardship. Those are qualities that I truly felt like I was always living. When I became a social worker, wanted to study social work in college, I'd always said, like, I felt called to be a social worker. It wasn't about the money. It wasn't about anything else. I just wanted to give back to people. And so that's what I decided to do. So then the work of helping people and wanting people to help themselves became central to me. And Quakers being very involved in that really felt like a natural home because it felt like here are these group of people who are living these qualities that are really important to me. They don't care about the money in the church. They're not asking for tithes every second of the day. It's about peacefulness and all that we do. They're not advocating for a politician in one way or another. 
integrity. You know, it wasn't about what you posted on Facebook. It was about what was in your heart. So a lot of those things spoke to me. And when I found that place, it really felt like home because I found a group of people that were trying to. Certainly, I'm not always attaining those things more often than not, probably. But the goal is to. And when I found a group of people that were also searching these qualities, it really felt like home to me. And actually, I, I didn't realize this until it, I, I went to a Quaker college, actually, Malone College, really in practice, Malone University now, it really in practice, their non-denominational Christian school, but they have a Quaker history. I didn't understand the rich Quaker history that was there until after I left, but th- they have a strong Quaker history and background. You know, our dorms are named after Quakers. I didn't know it, who those people were at the time until later. Could I just ask you uh, one or two things about that? One of the things then that you must be experiencing, Rodney, is Quaker communities, certainly unprogrammed friends, as we call ourselves across the country, there's a very large number who are very supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement. Actually, last May, when I guess the crap hit the fan about Rodney King, when that happened, there had been a, a years-long process that was accumulating a decision-making at Northern Yearly Meeting, the regional group of Quakers I'm involved with, to become an actively anti-racist community. Given that that's this Quaker environment you've been in for the last couple of years, how scary was it to you <laughs> to put out this article? Uh, one of your lines in it was, if I wasn't black, I could be afraid of being accused of being a racist because of what I'm saying in this article. Yeah, no, I, I know that. I, my brother kind of teases me sometimes about being conservative. And, and like I said, I, I'm not. But that's what I love about Quakerism, truth be told, is that you can have diverse opinions and still worship together. We can still come side by side and say, hey, we care about a cause. We may differ in how we get there but we can still come together side by side and say, we love each other. We love our communities. We love our people, we love the world. And I may not agree with you on that matter, but that's okay. We're still here to worship together. We're still here to serve others and serve God. And I really appreciated that part of it. And I still don't talk about this a lot though, because of how charged this is. I know I wrote an article about it, but I certainly didn't expect the article to be published. (laughs) Truly, I thought the Quakers were going to say, hey, no, we don't agree with this and aren't going to put this out. So I didn't expect it to be published. And the other part of being nervous to put that out is there does tend to be a lot of backlash if you don't support certain causes, either religiously. Certainly, I don't want my group of friends to look at me like, wow, you must not support what we do because you don't agree with this cause or that cause. Same thing with my employment. You know, I'm a mental health therapist, and I would say 99% of the people in the nonprofit world tend to agree with Quaker views. And so I was really concerned on both levels for kind of saying some things that might not be viewed welcomely by those groups. My dad is always pushing me to talk about these things more openly. Uh, My whole thing is I want to talk about them in a way that doesn't cause division. That's really it. That's all I want. It's okay for us to have different opinions. I have questions. You have questions. I don't have the answers. Other people might, but I just want to talk about these things in a way that says, hey, let's get some things out on the table that may not be talked about. It's okay if we disagree. We're all here for the same reason. And I really took it of my wife, my dad are saying, hey, talk about some of these things because I think some people want to hear them and also have questions about these things. And so for me, it became a time where I finally said, okay, I know you're scared to do this, but you might just have to. I don't have any social media. I'm not on Facebook or anything like that. So I certainly don't post anything there. I blog at my website and stuff, but I tend to shy away from this stuff because of the fear of repercussion. But I I think I'm at a point in my life where I'm more willing to speak openly if it can help a conversation. 
I love seeing your courage in action and speaking openly and lovingly. Uh, lovingly is a very key factor. There's some people who speak openly simply trying to beat other people down. One of the people who I know who speaks openly and I think is a great force for good in the world is Salika Lawton. And Salika, I know you as a religious person. I don't know if you have any idea of what high esteem I hold you in. Truly, you are one of the magnificent people in my life. And I would love to hear how religion, your spiritual point of view, supports you, motivates how it is fundamental or not to the work that you're doing. Well, Mark, you know you're one of the angels in my life, and you you are this model of peace and grace, so I thank you for that. I'm a cradle Catholic. I mean, I was born in the heart of Black Catholicism in the United States, New Orleans. Louisiana, southeastern Louisiana, has the largest percentage of Black Catholics in the U.S. That being said, there's less than 100,000 of us out of 33 million Black people. We're overrepresented in academe, we're overrepresented in business, we're overrepresented in all sorts of things. And that's that Catholic education. My mother, who is Catholic, was a church organist. My father was African Methodist Episcopal. AME has a service that's very close to Catholicism. It's not that different at all. Or old Catholicism before they messed up all the words. (laughs) Transubstantiation, oh my Lord. So we were surrounded by NBC Baptist, National Baptist Convention. We worked together because, well, you know, we had the problem of the claim. <laughs> but there was always an undercurrent from the Baptists that we were, we Catholics were going to hell. That <laughs> was within the Black community. So I helped to integrate my Catholic school. And I have nuns and priests in the family. So we are very Catholic. (laughs) Very, very Catholic. You know, Catholicism has always been important for me. There's two strains of Catholicism. There is the older traditional Latin mass, they call it prepeobe. It is power Catholicism. It is the Catholicism that compromised with the Nazis during World War II. It's the Catholicism of the Borgia Popes. It's the Catholicism that Luther rebelled against, where the priest doesn't face the congregation and the mass is in Latin, and it's very pretty, and you don't know what they're talking about. I'm a Vatican II child, in that the priest faced the congregation, and these were the newer priests who wanted to, they wanted to live as Jesus had lived, And they wanted a church that looked more like the churches that Jesus had created. And there was an emphasis in Vatican II on the Gospels. And it's the idea that at the core of Catholicism, before it was corrupted by its association with power, is the idea that that Jesus calls us to live by the Sermon on the Mount. That's why you'll hear me talk a lot about Matthew 25. You'll hear me talk a lot about the Sermon on the Mount. You'll hear me talk a lot about the Beatitudes. I don't say, what would Jesus do? Jesus was God. I said, what did Jesus tell us to do? And one of the things Jesus told us to do was to love the outsider. Mark is on my Facebook page, so he also knows that I talk or complain a lot about another one of those commandments, which is to love your enemy. You know, And that is something we are called to do that I think is the heart 
of Christianity, but people ignore it because it's hard to do. And that sometimes Christianity is corrupted by its association to power. And sometimes Christianity is a cultural thing that has nothing to do with the Gospels. So I call myself a red-letter Christian. I worry the most about Jesus' words in red. If something contradicts those words in red and somewhere else in the Bible, then it's Jesus' words you go with. Because I'm a historian and you always go back to the primary document. And the primary document is Jesus' words. So if Paul contradicts Jesus, I'm going with Jesus. And Jesus said, let us worship him with all tongues. Jesus said, love the brother you have ill with. And for me, you know, up here, like I said, less than 1% of the community here is black. We're, our problem here really is discrimination against us because of race. It's a very different environment than where Rodney is. And we've got a clan up here, and that clan has shown itself January 6th to be violent, and there's some proud boys running around town. And my husband had an interesting encounter at Harbor Freight. So my question that I have to ask myself, though, is how do I love these people? How do I respect these people? Because to not love them is to create a hook that evil can get in at me. I taught my students about subversion today. I'm teaching the America Post-1945 War class. I'm a military historian. And subversion is about manipulating your weaknesses. So I look at myself and I say, what is my weakness? What would allow evil to manipulate me? What, what comfort, what thing would make me justify doing evil? Because we all have that capacity to do evil. And that's why I say it doesn't matter if I'm brown or whatever. We all have to give each other equal respect. And that the fight against disparate treatment does not mean that I can behave badly to someone who I think has more power than I have. I need to model what Jesus wants. But I also, I look at St. Francis of Assisi, who said, preach the gospel always, only sometimes use words. How can we be a light? How can we help each other? How can we not judge each other? How can we listen to each other? And how can we help the outsider? Jesus was especially about how do you help the poor? I have friends who are conservative, and there are plenty of blacks. I mean, no one is going to be all liberal and all conservative. No, I want to help the poor. I'm anti-discrimination. I also probably have more guns than half the county in my house. Because my argument is the Klan is the reason that God made a 30-round clip. <laughs> you know. So I sit a little bit in this place where Rodney sits. There are things that I have to say that sometimes will make my liberal friends a little upset. I like saying, you know, I'm a black woman in an all-white area. Y'all ain't getting a gun from me. Nor do I want governmental overreach because fear of social workers coming into the home and wrongfully taking children is another reason why people will refuse to call the police in domestic violence situations and other situations where they need help. You know, the, the things that conservatives complain about has happened to the black community. You know, fear of false accusation makes many black people shy as far away from government services as we can. So there are certain things I don't want. But that Catholic faith means that 
I need to work with other people and not think that I am the shizzle that's in there. I have a PhD, but it doesn't make me better than anybody else. There's always someone else who's going to know more than me, who will be able to help me, who I will be able to work with. I am not better than anyone else. But you're more eloquent. I don't always know about that. (laughs) I do. (laughs) On Conversations in Color, it's Rod who is considered the one with the vocabulary, which is kind of hilarious. Because I've spent most of my academic life forcing myself not to acronym and use the $3 words. I can use them when I need to. But how do we touch people if it looks like we're having an intellectual war with them? You know, if we're dropping $3 words and, they're lo- and they need a dictionary in a order to translate, we need to respectfully talk to each other and find our shared values. And the shared values that we have is we want for everyone to be able to do the best. We want for everyone to be able to have food and shelter and to be able to take care of themselves. We want everyone to be safe. We have different tactics to do it. And that's, I think, where we can start to have a dialogue. And I think the other shared value is in this country, we need to stop name-calling people. You know, you can't compromise with evil. So if you think somebody is a fascist, or is a libtard, how can you compromise with them? How can you take the best of what they have to offer? There are some ideas that I have that some people will want. There are some ideas that Rodney will have that some people will want. What we need to do is put the best ideas together and to use those ideas. But as long as we have these ideological actors who act like you're a traitor if you don't agree with them, we're going to have problems. But we can overcome that. We overcame it during the McCarthy era. We overcame, in part, during 68, although we didn't finish the job. There is a job here to be done, and that is to end the disparate treatment and to open opportunity to everyone. That's the unfinished work of the civil rights movement, and it's going to be our generations who are going to do it. We're speaking with two guests today for Spirit in Action, and that was Salika Duxworth-Lawton, professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, and so very much more, some of which you've heard about already, though there's more yet to come. Rodney Long Jr. is also with us, and we'll hear more from him shortly. But first, I'll remind you that this is Spirit in Action. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our website, also hosting our Song of the Soul program, where the work of NSR is to promote world healing by broadcasting inspirational and educational voices of peace and social justice using the language of personal story, music, and spirituality. Links to Rodney and Salika are on the NSR website, along with the hundreds, or maybe it's thousands by now, of guests that we've had since 2005. We love seeing your comments, suggestions, and feedback. You can do that on the site and listen to your better angels and also click on Support Us to empower and underwrite the work of NSR. But do that after you support the local community radio stations in your area, like the 42 or so such stations that carry our programs nationwide. Media, the fourth estate, so crucial to a healthy democracy, is vital 
and community radio stations locally staffed and resourced are the best thing you can do for news and music in your town. Let's get back to part two, continued from last week, of our visit on race and racism and the grace that makes progress possible, as I direct another question to Salika Lawton. There's one event that you were part of that just raised you even further in my esteem, Salika, and that was there was some demonstration going in. I wasn't present. I read about it secondhand. Counter demonstrators, provocateurs were there, and you stepped in to keep the peace. Could you talk about that event? That was the Jacob Blake protest, and Uniting Bridges was providing support, logistical support for Eau Claire Rise Up and Eau Claire Justice League. So we were the logistical organizers on the, on the ground, and they were providing some of the speakers. I was one of the speakers. Normally, if I'm organizing one of these things, I work with the police. I'm also a commissioner on the Eau Claire Police and Fire Commission. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an expert in counterinsurgency. There's a lot of overlap. <laughs> so I'll work with the police. We will, you know, we'll make sure everything's legal and lawful and that there's no violence. But working with anarchists is a whole new <laughs> experience. You know, working with any extremist group. This was just a week after the shooting itself, and we had already agreed to step in when the shootings happened in Kenosha, just three days before we would have this. So the police were worried. I was worried. A number of three percenters and Proud Boys reached out to me through Facebook. My Facebook messenger was an interesting place to be. We had people who had rumors that Black Lives Matter protesters had shown up in a bus Friday morning at Perkins. I don't know why they would have gone to Perkins. They should have gone over to Osseo to go, you know. But there was no bus. People were just making stuff up to just create havoc. But we had credible warnings. I had people who were out on social media digging around in some of the dirtier areas that there were going to be people with guns there. The anarchists refused to move the end of the march to a park. I had wanted it to be at a park because in the parks in Eau Claire, you can't open carry. They wanted it to end at the security building where the sheriff and the police station both are, the county building. Problem is that's an open carry area in that parking lot. The anarchists here are white. They are young. They are middle class. They are not poor and they are not the ones to get shot by the police. So that was a lot of negotiation between me and the police to make sure that that was going to be a safe area, but also to make sure that the police weren't visible enough to be aggravating some of the wilder people. And taking lessons from the civil rights movement, we organized, we had watchers, I had psychiatrists and a couple of psychiatric counseling nurses out there. They were the de-escalators. If there were going to be anybody who was trying to be an agent provocateur against the crowd, we warned the crowd that there would be no cussing, there would be no violence, this was nonviolent. As I left the park where the march originated to go set up the med tents at the county building, we had received warning from the police that there were 30 armed protesters there. And I questioned my sanity as I was driving over. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I said a couple of prayers, and I'm like, there are people who are going to meet me there, I am not going to leave them alone. And I went, but that means I'm the only black woman in this area. (laughs) 
So when I get there, we have an 80-year-old doctor. We have his wife. I have a 75-year-old retired EMT and me. And then all the way across the parking lot, you know, maybe 50 yards away, there's a look, a really angry look at people. But they're looking at us and we're looking at them. And it's August. And it was hot. It was hot. And I had a CRV full of water. And I thought one of them looked familiar. He looked like he was from my neighborhood or my son would have known him. So I said, I'm going to go over and see what they're going to do. The worst things they can do is shoot me, right? And I walked over. It turned out that there were a couple of white supremacists there, but the majority of them were a biker gang that had been recruited to go there because they were told we were going to burn the courthouse down. And we said, we're not burning anything down. I'm here and I am making sure we're not burning anything down. Gave them my card and, you know, and they wanted to hug. This is COVID. I am black. I am a cancer survivor. So I'm wearing a mask and gloves. And I said, okay, I can say no or I can hug and maybe we can make some peace here. So we hugged and I walked back. By then my godson was there and we went over and brought them five cases of water. Because it was 89 degrees and they were in motorcycle leathers. And then this guy, I swear he looked like he was straight out of a movie. He had the beard and it had the braids in it. And he was bald. And he said, can we give water to your people? And I said, yes. And at that point, the four white supremacists with them just, they left the parking lot. They weren't, they were unhappy. I had offered one of them water he and he left. The motorcycle people gave water to the marchers and they stayed around and they kept edging closer and closer and my group would come over and by the end they were all mixed. And I gave them a shout out when I spoke and I said thank you for handing out the water. They talked to us and they said yeah they understood. They ride motorcycles. There are police who profile them and think that they're up to no good. They're dentists and CPAs. We had to find that common humanity. The police chief thinks I'm nuts, however, because he was watching this out the window. He's like, what is she doing? What is she doing? They're going to kill her. Do you deny that you're nuts in a good way? There's sometimes when God moves you. And yes, I am crazy. But sometimes you need to be crazy to get stuff done. And I think God was with me that day. And that little voice in the back of my head that said, give them water was God. It wasn't me. It was God. Because some days we get to be a vessel. And I was blessed that day to be a vessel. So I don't take credit for it. I was just a vessel. But, you know, we now have a set of 30 motorcycle dudes who follow Uniting Bridges. (laughs) (laughs) And they're libertarian, by the way. And they went out and drank my students under the table after the protest at Water Street. So it was, it all ended well. The anarchists, however, were not happy with me. So that's all all well and good, but that means that the most violent group now has been neutralized and that here in Eau Claire, we can, we have an opening. We have a space for people to find the common values And that's important. That's a part of Eau Claire. We try to find those common values. That's a part of this culture here. That's why I'm saying it wasn't just me. They were moved to meet me halfway. 
that could have gone very badly. Well, speaking of craziness, I'm crazy about you. I cannot believe how fortunate we are to have you here and the work that you do. Rodney, we've had you sitting quietly since you identify with Quakers these days. Maybe that's easy for you. I'd love to hear a little bit more from you before I sign off for today's Spirit in Action program. Have you had thoughts, reactions, further insights while we're listening with Salika? Sure. No, I I appreciate the opportunity to be here. One of the things that I really wanted to come out of this is for people to be able to say, hey, we might not see things the same. Maybe we do. We can find some common ground in all of this. And even if we can't, that's okay. We're allowed to disagree and we can do it in a civil way where we're not biting each other's heads off just because we might see things differently. And I think for me, part of that, and that's, there's a real connection to the friends there for me. Because when I look at the peace testimony, it looks to me like being peaceful in all that I do, not just what I say, but also how I act. And there's a piece of the integrity testimony that says, don't be so arrogant that you need to speak over someone or act like you have the right opinion or that you know more than them. So to me, those things are vital to my faith. And I think all of those things coalesce to kind of have God pushing the conversation forward rather than the things that I might want to say sometimes where I might want to speak up and and really shout my opinion or or say something or just look to disagree with somebody because I can be that way sometimes. And so I think a lot of that is for me, the friends has really showed me that peacefulness is a vital part of this conversation. And that community means talking to everybody about these things, not just the people I agree with but also being willing to have difficult conversations with people. And that's what I love about the Quaker testimonies, because for me, they lay out how to live. I I mean, biblically, you know, growing up Baptist, I loved Galatians 5.22, I think, where they talk about the fruit of the spirits versus the vices. I'd always felt like the Quaker faith to me was a living spirituality, where it said, here's what I get to do with my time here. Parker Palmer, in his book, Let Your Life Speak, Really what he's, you know, the the Quaker saying is, let your life speak. You know, people should know what's important to you by the way that you live. And I certainly wouldn't do that if it was up to me all the time. But when I'm, I'm living, trying to live with God at the forefront and with the Quaker testimonies at the front, I'm saying, here's how I can show the world that simplicity is important to me by not going out and buying the fanciest clothes and and that that's not what's important about what's in your heart, you know? integrity is important to me because I don't want to get on here and say one thing and then go say another when I get off the the call. Peacefulness, that you and I need to respect each other regardless of how we feel. Even when I'm driving down the road, you know, I don't need to to get angry at somebody for cutting me off or whatever. Equality, you know, Salika has said this a couple of times. I I think, you know, hey, I'm not better than you just because I have a PhD. You know, I'm no better than anybody because of, you know, anything I have. And so, those things stick out to me because they really are not the way I would act all the time. I would certainly be in opposition to those things if it was up to me sometimes. And so for me, being here was really a chance to say, this is important, not just to me, but I I think can benefit everybody. And that friends have done so much of that for me. When I found the Quakers, the first book I found is Living the Quaker Way by Philip Gully. And I just about read everything I could get my hands on when it came to the Quakers. And I fell really in love with the history that was there, their service, commitment to others, but also the way in which we lived and said, it's important how we live here. So coming here today, I'm, I'm so thankful for a chance to talk with you both. And, and I'm so impressed with the work you've done, Salika. I just, I'm, I've read about you online when I knew we were coming here. And I'm 
I'm really impressed. Same with you, Mark, just a chance to come together with you guys and say, hey, we're all here in agreement that we want to talk about these things and advance some of these things. And I think being here was just a way to allow God to come through in some of those ways that I think my issues sometimes stop. And so I'm appreciative of that. Well, we're going to come looking for you because we need to talk about the fear in the Black community of dealing with mental health and especially the catch-22 that can be when you're dealing with someone who's mentally ill, you're afraid to call the police or when you're mentally ill and you need to get help, but you're afraid that admitting you're mentally ill and needing a counselor says that you're weak, that you're not manly or that you're not a strong Black person, that kind of thing. And I think you know, Mark, we need to have that conversation. We need to have that conversation. And it's not just the Black conversation. We need to have a conversation about how mental health really is a giant driver for all of these things, whether we're talking about poverty or discrimination or addiction or just the ability to interact with people with respect. I mean, we all need more training in mental health. And Rodney is doing God's work because that is a hard field to be in. I will tell you, that is definitely hard. And teenagers plus, I got a 13-year-old here. You know, I'm just grateful I don't have to deal with that as a mental health profession. All I have to do is be a mother to her. But to have that conversation, I think, would be very important. What I have noticed, and this is my experience, is that when we're dealing with overt discrimination here in Eau Claire, it's usually a white person who has a mental health issue. Sometimes it's a power issue, but I've rarely seen that. It's usually a mental health issue. If we could help marginalized people have better mental health, it would be easier for a number of people to get out of poverty. And if we could help majority people have better mental health, it would be easier for us to have a healthier culture and easier for us to integrate and be unified the way we need to be. You know, so I have great respect for what you're doing, Rodney, because, oh, my Lord, it is a hard thing to do. So kudos to you. Kudos to you. And Rodney, I wanted to say one more thing. Salika mentioned her 13-year-old daughter. I want to just thank you for taking all this time being with us. I mean, sure, you've got your demanding work situation and all, but you've also got a wife who's pregnant. And how soon is this forthcoming? And what's in the future for you? Thanks for asking. I'm always excited to talk about this. I actually have one daughter. She is 17. She'll be going off to college next year. And so we're expecting another. So there's a big gap there. We got one going to college, one coming. So our next baby will be here in August. And I'm super excited for that. This will be my first birth. My daughter is from my wife's previous relationship, but she is my baby. She was was never my stepdaughter, will never be my stepdaughter. She is my daughter, my baby girl. But this is my first birth that I get to be a part of. And I'm so excited for that. I just found out today, the baby is at the point where they can hear. And I told my wife, I have to wait to say anything. So I know exactly what to say to them first. I think it's going to be something like, go Cleveland Browns or Dog Pound or something like that. 
So that's what I'm sticking with, but I'm waiting. My wife is healthy and she's excited. We just, we can't wait for this. I, I've been teasing her. I'm Rodney Jr. My dad is Rodney Sr. I joke with her that if, if it's a boy and we name him Rodney, she'll never have to worry about not knowing anything anymore since between Rodney Sr., Rodney Jr. and Rodney the Third, she'll know everything she needs to know. We're really excited about this. We're, we're happy. I'm, I'm over the moon. And thanks for asking. I appreciate it. You need to talk to her belly and tell the baby that the baby wants to be an engineer. <laughs> yeah. No, something like that. Certainly. I keep telling her I, I'm short. I'm only five foot seven. My daughter is actually taller than I am. So my dad always says, don't make her mad or else she's going to, you know, give you one of these. But I kind of joke, maybe our kid will come out like six foot 10 and go to the NBA or something. Send me off to the beach as we get older, you know, something like that. So fingers crossed. <laughs> I'm so happy for you, Rodney. It's so wonderful that in spite of all the things going on in your mind, I imagine there's so much that you're organizing for your life that you took this time out. And we've gone a lot longer, Salika and Rodney, than I had anticipated, but I am thankful for this and thankful for the deep thought and the service that both of you have put into this and for the promise of the future that both of you bring. Thank you so much, Rodney, for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much for having me. It was really great to be on with you, Salika, and thank you both and, and take care. And Salika, again, I adore you. I am so thankful for your part in our lives here, my life, and that you joined us here today for Spirit in Action. I am grateful to you, Mark. You know that. Do anything you want. Do any, you know, ask me and I, I will be there. And folks, again, we've been speaking with Rodney Long Jr. Uh, maybe Ro- Rodney Long the third's coming along soon. RodneyLongJr.com is his website. The link's on NordenSpiritRadio.org. His recent article in Friends Journal was, Before My Life Matters to You, Let It Matter to Me. So you can find his website and a link to that article on our website. And we've also had Salika Lawton here, amongst other things. She said she serves on four boards, but I don't know how many other commissions and organizations she serves on beyond that. One of the very significant ones is called Uniting Bridges. We have their link on Facebook on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. Connect up, get active, and help become a world healer do the work of God in the world through your actions. And this can be a much better place. And thank you all again for joining me for Spirit in Action. We'll see you next week. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, 